The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. This week, we are continuing in our series called Parables. Uh, And what we're doing is exploring the examples and stories Jesus used to teach deep and important principles, okay? So if you have a Bible, if you turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 37. Um, The count varies because of differences in what some consider to be a parable, but uh, it's generally agreed upon that there's 24 parables found in the book of Luke, 18 of which are unique to it. So that means that six of the parables found in Luke are also found in other Gospels. Uh, I'm really thankful for the different Gospels and their varying perspective and content. Uh, It means we get to read more of the acts and teachings of Jesus than we would have if only one guy would have wrote. Uh, And I'm thankful for that. Uh, Matthew has 23 parables recorded, 11 of which are unique just to that book. Mark has eight, and two are unique, uh, which makes sense. Mark is is, uh, shorter than the other two. Uh, the book of John does not have any narrative parables in it, uh, and what I mean when I say that are, are kind of like stories that teach a truth. For example, like Jesus would rip off and he would tell this story about, you know, this guy that owns a vineyard and he sends his workers, or he would say there's this, there was this kid and, and he asked for his inheritance, right? We got the prodigal son, so he's come to tell a long story, and woven into that story were deep spiritual principles. Um, so that would be like a, a narrative parable, um, you don't find any of those in the book of John, but there are metaphors and comparative examples used, which some would uh, consider to be shorter parables. There's other words you could use for it, like allegory or metaphor, uh, but I would consider those as well. If Jesus is using an example to try to teach you something that you may not get without the example, uh, I think it falls under the rubric of a parable. So, uh, just a little bit of extra background there for you. There's a lot of parables, and so um, Jesus really liked to teach that way. Uh, we talked a little bit last week about why that was, um, and so you can refer to that uh, if you'd like to hear it. I'm sure we'll talk about it some more as well. Okay, uh, we're going to read Luke chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 37, and we're going to go to verse 45, okay? No, we're not. We're going to stop at 39 right now. Nah, let's read the whole thing. I'm changing my mind midstream. What's that called when they do that in football? There you go. Pulling an audible. Okay. See, I can relate to you. I'm not, a, I'm not a sports scrooge, right? Just wove the sports analogy in there. Now everybody's on board. All right, good. Let's go. Verse 37, Luke chapter 6. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke... A parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. 
For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. First thing I would point out to you is that this is not a narrative parable, so this is not a long story uh, that gives us a principle. This is more of a comparative parable, uh, and so examples are used to drive home a point, and I think Jesus does a really good job with that, because uh, I can't read that without feeling convicted, so uh, let's go ahead and dive in here and have some fun. Um, let's, let's refer back up to uh, verse 37. I'm just going to read that to you again. It says, do not judge and you will not be judged, and do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. This is perhaps one of the most well-known and misused verses in all of the Bible, okay? Everybody knows this one, right? Don't judge! Don't judge me, right? We all like it. Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you run with. I like that one. Jesus said, you may not care who Jesus is, you might not think he's the son of God or nobody, but remember Jesus said, don't you judge, Okay? It's a bit of a misapplication. Uh, what many take this to mean is universal acceptance of all behavior, that there should be no moral standard, that nobody should judge anyone or anything, and everything will be great. It'll be a utopia where every man is an island unto himself. I get to establish my own moral values, and you could never come and infringe upon that because Jesus said, don't you judge. Right? Yay, that's not it. Okay. If that is what Jesus meant here, then he was very confused six verses later. Okay, so let's jump down and read verses 43 through 45. So remember, again, I can't say this enough. Heresy and Bible error often comes out of ignoring just one simple Bible interpretation principle, and that's context. The Bible is not meant for us to go through and pick a favorite verse, lift it up out of the verses that it's around, and then stick it on our fridge and say... There's my truth right there. You've got to figure out what's in front of it, what's behind it. What did the author originally intend in writing those verses? If you do it the other way, you end up into goofy stuff, okay? So we need to pay attention to what's around this. And just a few verses later, um, somebody that would want to say what Jesus was saying there is that nobody should ever have any judgment about anything, they would realize that can't be the case or else Jesus is schizophrenic, right? So let's go down to verse 43. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. He goes on to say that uh, your mouth is going to tell you a lot about what's in your heart. Okay? So here's my question to you, Love City. What is required to determine good fruit from bad? A judgment! There you go! Thank you! A judgment, right? So clearly, clearly we are called to make assessments based on the results of actions in our lives and in the lives of others, okay? I think Paul gives us some further clarification and really helpful clarification in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 9 through 13. I'm just going to read those to you. Here's what he says. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. You hear what he's saying? If you're going to avoid everybody who's a knucklehead, you'd have to go live in a cave with a can of beans and a candle, and that would be it. Um, but really, you'd be violating the principle even then, because you'd be there. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, 
Only half of you even got that. Some of you are still wondering, what did he just say? Get the tape. Play it back. You'll get it. The tape. That's funny. It's 2014. Okay, we're getting off track. Verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That's a quote from the Old Testament, the last few words there. So here's the deal. The instructions we are given from Jesus um, here in, in Luke is clearly not to turn off our mental faculties and excuse absolutely any actions or false teachings or anything else anyone wants to do. Can't be what he's saying. Paul came further and clarified. Uh, he, does not, he does tell us we have no business judging those outside the church, that that is up to God. But Jesus is definitely telling us to judge others, judge others, we'll get it, telling us to judge others with the same level of grace we would like to be judged with. I know this looks easy, but it's not, especially when you're talking fast. So, so you could judge me right now and say, well, that guy can't talk very good. You need to have more grace, okay? <laughs> that was funny, wasn't it? Um, so can I say this to you? I want to say this to you, and I mean this from the very bottom of my heart. I want to be judged. I want to be. I would not revel in the ignorant statement that only God can judge me. You seen that? First of all, that's never true because I could always judge myself and I'm commanded to in the scriptures. But if the people of God cannot lovingly and graciously assess my words and actions, then I am probably not a part of the family of God. And that means the day when everyone faces the real judgment in front of the righteous and holy judge is not going to go good for them. Does that make sense? I would much rather deal with you here than the king of glory on that day. I would much rather you bring the blows of a friend and lovingly come to me and challenge me even if you're wrong. I'd rather have that discussion and work through it. I would, I would welcome that and consider it love on your part than to leave me to my own devices, to leave me running ignorant after my own passions, and to end up face-to-face -face with the Holy One that day. And all the time, you could have warned me. I want to be judged. I want to. And you see how that changes that scripture? See, if, you're, if your major motive is, I just want to do what I want to do, I don't want anybody in any way to assess anything I do or say, then you're going to run to an interpretation of that verse that means then nobody judge anybody. I'll leave you alone, but you leave me alone because I don't want anybody stepping in here telling me what to do. But if what you desire is to have accountability, if what you desire is for people that love you to challenge you if something's awry in your thoughts or your behaviors or your words, you see that verse totally different. It's, a, it's more of an instruction on how we make judgment than a complete barring of it, which no intelligent reading of it especially considering the context, could lead you to the understanding that Jesus was obliterating everybody's ability to make an assessment about anything. I mean, that's just ignorant. Okay. Um, so, I want to be judged, but not harshly or out of a motive to cut me down. Uh, but if there are people who love me and are on the same mission with me, then I would never want them to just ignore a sinful tendency in me that's going to lead to pain and destruction for me. I wouldn't want you to ignore that. If you love me, then you should challenge me, especially if I'm doing something or saying something or thinking something that's going to end up in pain for me. Right? 
I love my kids. Just because Max decides it'd be fun to turn the stove on and play in the flame. I mean, well, how, how, should, how should I dare judge his decision on that? Well, for, I'm his dad, and I love him, and I know that's bad for him. So I'm going to step in there and say, son, I'm judging your decision to play in the flames on the stove. It's a bad idea. Right? Now, I realize that's probably an overly simplistic example, but um, sin is no less dangerous than the flames of a stove, my friend. It will lead to pain. It does lead to death. The Bible is totally clear on that point. Whether we always see the direct equal signs of how this action, this disobedience to God Almighty is going to end in my destruction, not always can we make those connections, but here's the overarching principle that's always true. Disobey God, it will lead to pain for you. And so a group of people that believe that and love each other should be willing to speak to that in each other's lives. Yes or no? Amen. We're having fun. The family of God should have each other's back in any and every situation. Rain or shine, war or peace, good times and bad. And one of the ways we do that is to lovingly check each other. This is one of the many beneficial outworkings of community groups. Uh, If you show up there and you say... um, Hey guys, I wasn't here last week. I decided what would be a better plan. I wanted to sit home and uh, I wanted to just watch porn and hang out with my other accountability group. It's, uh, it's Jim Beam and Johnny Walker. Uh, I thought that'd be a better idea than coming to community group. Here's my question. Um, is it loving or unloving for somebody in your group to pull you aside and say, hey bro, that's a sin. You should stop. And if you don't, that's going to lead to pain in your life. Is it loving or unloving for somebody to have the guts to confront you? It's loving, man. What's unloving is to say, wow, that could be an awkward situation. I don't like having conversations where there's conflict because clearly they already thought it was a good idea and I don't want them to think I'm judging them, so I'm just going to let that go. Listen, there is something to be said for being led by the Holy Spirit. Not every time that you see something uh, that could be an issue is it your job to jump in um, and, and be the sin police. So sometimes the best thing to do is to pray for that person and to ask God by his Holy Spirit to instruct them. Sometimes that's what God will lead you to do, but sometimes God will lead you to lovingly get in their face. Right? Uh, or let's say a sister comes and tells her accountability group there at, at uh, our community groups, you know, yeah, my next door neighbor, he's got a mustache and he wears a lot of tank tops, and um, he's been hitting on me a lot and telling me that I'm beautiful, and, you know, my husband's kind of boring, doesn't have a mustache, so... I'm going to leave my husband and my kids, and I'm going to go on a road trip with this guy in his convertible Mustang. Um, Is it loving or unloving for a sister to pull that other dear sister aside and say, hey, you know, I know the grass always looks greener on the other side, but using a, a ladder made of sin to get over there always leads to pain. Right? It's, it's never good. Ask Lot about it. <laughs> it didn't work out good for him. That grass looked way green over there, away from Abraham, out from under that, that covering and that seeming oppression of, of being under Abraham's so-called rule. Lot got away from the blessing of God and <clears throat> things didn't go good. If you are wise, then you know you are never above the potential to believe a lie. Whether that lie is spun up in our own sinful mind or is from the enemy, we all have the potential to be deceived. Because of this humble realization, we should desire for people who love us 
to judge us and hold us accountable. You're in the most trouble when you figure it out and you get to the point where you think you've arrived. As soon as you think you're the one that's now impervious to deception, that you'll never be led astray, you know that Bible's so good, you've gotten so holy that there's no way you or the devil could convince you of something stupid. You've been convinced of something stupid. <laughs> Amen? You're not above it. Neither am I. Nobody is. We have to be on guard. We have to be open. We have to walk in the light as he is in the light. That's the call of 1 John. It's very wise. We ought not think more of ourselves than we should. So we should want someone to love us, judge us, and hold us accountable. But we need to remember that we, when we're on the side of doing the holding accountable, that um, we need to remember how much grace and mercy has been given to us by our precious Savior. And we need to make sure to try and use those same measurements with others. So when we're in that difficult position of being the loving brother or loving sister that's coming to the other to challenge them, we need to remember, we need to remember how much grace has been given to us because that will inform the way we deal with them. And the motive for which we come to somebody always is going to determine the outcome. If your motive is, I, I feel better than you because I don't sin the same way as you and so I'm going to come and challenge you about your stuff, it's not going to go good. But if your pure motive is, I really, really love you, and I don't want to see the results of this continual disobedience to God manifest in your life, and so I want to come and, and I want to stop you, and I want to speak to you lovingly, and I want to challenge you to obey God and not disobey God, because that's where your joy is going to be. If that's your motive, man, uh, it'll come through. The way you speak will be different, even your tone, and you'll be anointed by God to do it. Um, I've seen it go both ways. I've watched situations happen where somebody challenged a brother or sister and their motive was not totally pure. There was some pride mixed into that and uh, it wasn't received well and it caused the fracturing of relationship. I've also seen it where uh, men of God and women of God have grown stronger together because somebody had the guts to stand up and say, hey, you should stop doing what you're doing. I love you. I've seen them become closer friends because now that builds a level of trust. And that, that shows me, if you came to me and you were willing to challenge me, what that tells me, if I'm thinking right, is that you care. Because that's not fun. It's not fun to come and potentially wade into an awkward discussion. And so if, if you came to me and said, hey, bro, I, I heard you say this, or I saw you do this, and it's, I'm concerned about it, um, even if there was some explanation and you weren't fully aware of the facts, maybe, maybe if you were even off in your assessment, the bottom line is I shall, still should come away from that really thankful for you. Um, that's the right way to think. Amen? Amen. Okay. So have grace with each other. All right, let's read verse 38. Wow, that was verse 37. We've got to get going here. Um, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. This verse is often quoted before somebody takes up an offering. Uh, to motivate everybody to partake in a God-ordained Ponzi scheme uh, where you put some money in and poof, you get a bunch more in return. Okay? Um, I'll just stop right there. Uh, this verse does pertain to money, but reducing it to that is tragic because it pertains to so much more than that. Jesus is highlighting a spiritual law of sowing and reaping. 
This spiritual law is so prevalent in the world that it goes by many names. You'll hear some people simply say what goes around comes around. You'll hear some people call it karma. But the point is almost everybody understands you will reap what you sow, good or bad. This law is so prevalent. It is so woven into the fabric of creation. It is so obvious that almost every major set of philosophical thinkers have recognized it and come up with a name for it. You understand what I'm saying? God names it rightly because he's its author, as, as is everything else. So it, it is sowing and reaping, but um, it flies under many banners. The truest application of Jesus' words here in verse um, 38, um, because of the context, has to do with how we judge others. So the truest application of these has to do with judging others. Uh, if we are harsh and cynical and devoid of grace, then that is how we will be dealt with. You get that? Uh, if we are loving and merciful and our motive is to be helpful, then that is what we will experience. Um, this law of sowing and reaping does apply to money as well, but I believe it should not be our motive for giving. The bottom line is you cannot give God, and if you are a generous giver, he is going to put more resources into your hands for sure. Um, but if we give with a motive to get, it will, I believe it will short-circuit the law of sowing and reaping. Here's what James 4.3 says. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Sowing and reaping is true. If you are generous and you are a giver, God will give you more so that you can give more because he gets glory when his people are generous. You understand that? But if that's your motive going in, like I'm going to give a bunch because then God will give me a bunch more because I've got my eye on this thing or the other thing that that I would like to buy for myself, James says that's not going to work. Your motive's an issue. So the same action with different motives can still be either good or bad. Two people could put a $10,000 check in the offering. One could be doing it out of a heart of gratitude for the gospel and a desire to see it go forth. And the other could be doing it because he hopes God will give him $100,000 back so he can go buy a bigger boat. Both gave the same amount. One will reap, one will not. One will be in trouble with the Lord <laughs> for giving because of their sinful motive. How's that sound? God will still use the money. The wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. <laughs> God will take dumb people's money all the time and use it for his glory. Don't get it twisted. Of course he will. But it's about whether or not this, this spiritual law works for you. If your motive is to try to work this spiritual law, it's not going to work for you. Your motive to give should be that you love Jesus a whole lot and you're really thankful for the fact that he saved you from certain death and eternity separated from God. And you should want other people to know about that. And so giving should be an outflow of, your generosity should be an outflow of gratitude to God. That's the way this whole thing works properly. It can't be because, you know, you see God as, a, you know, a generous investment banker, and if you stick your money in there with him, you'll, you'll get a big return in this life. Uh, that's, that's messed up. I truly believe that God will give a bunch of resources to people who love him and will use it for his glory. Uh, that's not to say, however, that there are no um, greedy God-haters that are rich. There are, aren't there? Uh, and that can be confusing. But, um, and really, on the contrary, there's many greedy God-haters that are rich. Uh, but we should not see that as an unfair blessing from God to them, but as a false idol who will fail them in the end. You should not look covetously at the rich, wicked man. You should look at him with sympathy. You should pray for him. 
Because he may have more material wealth, but he is broken and destitute on the inside if he's without Christ. So you should pity him as opposed to uh, be envious of him. You should pray for his salvation. Let's read verses 39 through 42 together. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he's been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. First off, we need to see this for what it is. It's a humorous warning against hypocrisy. Uh, I think oftentimes we miss the humor in the Bible, and this is a really good example of it. Um, I could see the crew of one of those, those shows where guys go down and, around and do ridiculous stunts, either hurting themselves or each other. You know the shows I'm talking about. Uh, I could see them doing a sketch with two blind guys, right, supposedly leading each other around towards bodies of water, uh, you know, whatever, to steps, bumping into stuff. I could see them doing that to try to get film the reactions of the people around. Uh, it is, as long as nobody's about to die, a humorous situation. Um, it's kind of ridiculous, a blind man leading a blind man, isn't it? It's funny, and that's part of the point. Humor is a good teacher, and Jesus knows that. And if we know how to look for it, we'll see when he uses it. Um, or just, you know, imagine a guy for real. I mean, we can, we can kind of brush over this, but use your imagination with me. I know sometimes it's hard. Imagine a guy with a log sticking out of his eye, walking up to somebody and saying, Hey, brother, uh, I noticed you've got an eyelash there in your eye. He's got a log out of his eye. Hey there, uh, you got an eyelash. You mind if I get that for you? That's ridiculous. Homeboy should be worried about the log in his own eye, should he not? And yet he's not. He sees your eyelash from across the room, and here he comes. It's funny. It's so dumb, it's funny. Sometimes what we do is so dumb, it's funny. Because <laughs> that's what we're getting at, right? You knew I wasn't going to leave it at the guy with the log in the story. You knew we were coming to you, right? Go ahead, everyone reach up and feel your log in your eye. There it is. You've all got one. Okay. Uh, Jesus is pointing out our tendency to be way better at spotting the faults and sins of others than we are our own. Do you know that about yourself? Your natural tendency will be to be much more effective at spotting the shortcomings of others than you will your own. As we go through here, uh, Luke 6.40, it seems to be a bit of a break in his train of thought. Let me just read it to you here. So he's, he, he talks about the blind leading the blind, and then he's, and he, you know, you would think he would jump right to why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? It's like another example kind of saying the same thing, but he breaks it up with this admonishment here. Verse 40, he says, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he's been fully trained will be like his teacher. And a lot of commentaries just skip this because they don't know what to do with it. It's kind of oddly inserted in there, and then there's not really agreement about what Jesus is even talking about right there. Uh, I spent a lot of time thinking and praying about that, um, and you know, if somebody here knows better, that's fine. Uh, I did not see where I arrive in any of the commentaries, but um, I think it makes the most sense as it flows with the context. So if this is heresy, chalk it up. Um, some believe he's referring to the Pharisees in saying that, uh, and the fact that they will lead more to be hypocrites like them. Um, 
for we tend to emulate the example of our teachers. So some think that that's a reference to the Pharisees. I think that could be possible, but as I'm reading it, I really believe it's more likely, um, especially because this discourse is aimed at his disciples. If you go all the way back to the beginning of when he starts talking, he's addressing his disciples. Um, I think what he's doing here is he's beginning to saddle them with the responsibility of going from mere disciples to disciple makers. I think in the midst of this encouragement, in the midst of his teaching, he's stopping to remind them and say, hey guys, listen, this is really important. You need to get this. Um, It's almost like Jesus, in the middle of his teaching, kind of making the point, you guys are going to be responsible when I'm gone to make disciples that are going to make disciples that are going to make disciples that are going to spread the good news of the gospel of the whole world. And so you got to get this right because you guys are going to make a bunch of disciples that are going to then go and make disciples and your disciples are going to act like you. And so you got to get this right. Listen to me. Pay attention. Don't be like this. Don't be the guy with the log in his eye picking the specks out of others. And so I think even here, he's beginning to saddle them with the Great Commission. He's beginning to let them know, ultimately, guys, this is, I'm going to leave you with a job to do. I need you to understand, not just remembering the words I said is going to be important, but living a life that is able to be followed is one of the earmarks of a disciple maker, an effective one anyways. And so I see Jesus beginning to prepare them for that kind of thought because we know that right before he ascends, what he ends up saying to them is go into all the world. Go into all the world. And he doesn't say go into all the world and make converts, which is oftentimes what it seems like we try to do. He says go into all the world and make disciples. Guys, we get somebody, and we lead somebody to Jesus. We share somebody uh, with somebody the beauty of the gospel, and they come to faith in Christ. We've got to understand our job's not done. We don't stop and hand clap and high five, and now we have a party all we just did is start a job. The finishing of that job is walking out, being a disciple maker, and teaching that person how to go from first putting faith in Christ to being a disciple maker themselves. That's why he said, go make disciples. Okay? It's like he's telling them, look, the disciples you make, they're going to be like you. And so you guys got to get this right. We can't have a bunch of disciples run around being hypocrites. Can't have a bunch of people supposedly entrusted with the beauty of the gospel being people that are running around harshly judgmental and blind to their own sins. That won't work. Nobody will buy that message from people like that. Right? And so the fact that this is pointed towards the disciples, we need to remember sometimes we get to stand on the sideline and watch Jesus like just burn the Pharisees, right? He hammers them. And sometimes it's fun to be like, yeah, get them, Jesus. Here's the thing though, guys. We are disciples of these disciples. And so really, we're in the hot seat on this one. Okay? So this is not one of, of many times when you would try to shirk it and be like, oh man, I know somebody, that'd be a really good met, you know, set of verses for them to read. <laughs> this is a good set of verses for you to read. Okay? This is a good parable for you to take note of. This is a good one to read and then look in the mirror over and over. It's about me. Okay? Because we all, we all, struggle with this tendency. This is common to humanity. Uh, and this, this, the fact that Jesus does that, um, I think is a good example, and it's, and it's a reason why good Bible preaching is often the equivalent of a verbal blacksmith's hammer. Uh, and sometimes I will pound on you, but it's because God has called me to bring to bear the weight of his magnificent word upon you, blow after blow, to form you into something useful and beautiful. 
Some people would rather stay a useless lump of iron because they don't want to experience the glorious pain of being molded. I invite conviction. I don't know where you're at on this. It's not fun. It never gets, it's never gets to the point where it's fun to realize, oh, I'm a wretch. That never gets fun, but um, it does get to the point where it can be uplifting because I can, I can see the work of sanctification happening in my heart. I can see God whittling away from me useless things and adding to me useful things so that I can be a more glorious vessel for him that I can lead to more glory for him, that less often will I be a disciple walking around with a log in my eye, pointing out specks in others, as he brings me through verses like this, as he hammers me by his spirit in love, he he strips away from me some of that tendency. I will never totally get away from this, but my hope is to spend less days like these hypocrites than than days that I am like them. Does that make sense? (laughs) I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like the people described in this parable. Um, I would like to be able to ask every single person that is called by God to be a part of Love City two questions and be able to get a quick answer from them. I should be able to ask, ask you these two questions anytime and I should be able to get an answer from you. Who are you praying for that they will meet Jesus? You should have somebody and, and you shouldn't have to think about it. There should be somebody every single day you're bringing before the Lord, Lord, I'm... I'm If you want to use me in the process, then please, Lord, anoint me to help lead them to you. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe you're just aware of the fact that they don't have the hope of Christ. There should be somebody you're praying for to meet Jesus. Might be a family member, might be a coworker, might just be somebody you know. Could be a neighbor. I don't know. I should be able to ask you that, and I should be able to ask you, who are you discipling? All of you should have somebody that's in your life that you're pouring the word into, that you're watching out for that you consider yourself accountable for. Because one of the distinguishing marks of a disciple is not somebody that just believes something. That's a convert. A disciple is somebody that believes something with such passion that they'll assist in teaching others about that thing, that philosophy, whatever it is. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to instantly be called as a teacher to instantly be called as a disciple maker. And so some of you would push back on that and you say, listen man, half the time I can't get my own stuff together, much less be speaking into someone else's life. I get that. I promise you I do. I feel that way often. <laughs> um, but here's what I'm saying to you. If you have the hope of Christ, if you've gone from death to life, if you spent time in this word, I, I know that you're imperfect, but you've got something to give somebody. And so if you understand the gospel message, you have something beautiful to share. So find somebody to share it with. And then grab their hand and be willing to walk with them through life. It's going to cost you something. Being a disciple maker is not this like long distance, you know, barely touch you, stay, kind of stay clean and out of the mess. To be a disciple maker, you've got to be willing to invest in people's lives in a real, serious, authentic way. And those of you that are a part of that, you know that's true. It costs you something. But it's also one of the most beautiful things you could ever be a part of, to see and watch God's Spirit grow somebody. And to have the humbling experience of realizing that God's allowing you to be a part of that process, as unqualified as you and I would be. Okay? So I'm going to start doing it. I'm going to walk in here. I'm going to hit you with, who are you praying for to meet Jesus? And who are you discipling? I'd like to hear a name. You happy about that or sad? 
Don't sweat. I'm not going to do it today, right? I'll give you a week. All right. Having these answers means, if you've got those answers ready, it means you're on mission. And having those two things in place in your life, it should have the effect I think Jesus was going for in verse 40. Reminding you that if you are a Christian, you should be a disciple maker. And if you are a disciple maker, then someone is watching your life for an example of how to live. And to quote Jesus, everyone after being trained will be like his teacher. Do you see what that does for your life? Man, that takes the accountability up. I believe there's, there's three ways all of us should be accountable. We should have somebody over us in the Lord. Somebody that knows the Bible and loves us. And if we go crazy, they should be able to grab us by the back of the neck and say, listen to me, shut up. Some of you don't like that I just said that. I've got guys in my life that if I went crazy, I decided tomorrow, you know what? You know what would be cool? Another wife. That'd be cool. There's guys in my life that they are in place. I know, that's the craziest thing I could have thought of to say, but it just, that's what happened. This isn't in my notes, so there you go. We're out in uncharted territory now. I never know what will happen. Um, there are guys in my life that know it's on paper. They could come in, strip me of everything, and sit me down immediately. If I get into some kind of active rebellion where I just think I know better than what the Bible says. And I'm really happy that's there because I don't. I'm not ignorant enough to think I'm above the potential to be deceived. Now, that's not my plan. <laughs> my plan is to love my wife and love my kids and serve this church until I end up in a box. Okay? That's the plan, but I don't know. So we should have people who are accountable to above us that we believe two things, that they love Jesus and they love us enough that we would submit to what they say even if we disagree. You should have that in your life. You should have people next to you in the Lord. You should have people that are running the race next to you. They're similar in their maturity, and so there's a camaraderie that comes in that, and you're running with them. There's an accountability there because you don't want to let them down. Thirdly, you should have somebody behind you. And I'll tell you that oftentimes when temptation comes, when that, that stupid thought flashes across my mind and I'm tempted to do or say something that would be contrary to God's word, oftentimes what happens, I, I, I don't want to deal with the guys that are above me because that would be embarrassing, and I don't want to let the guys down next to me for sure because I love them, but Oftentimes what just makes that temptation dissipate quicker than anything is all the people I'd be letting down that I'm supposed to be accountable for and discipling. Knowing that they could end up like me because they're following me. It's a heavy weight. It's a good weight. It's real accountability. It should matter. And if I really love them, then that should be extremely powerful ammunition against um, temptations of all kind. Does that make sense? It really is. Um, it's totally true. <clears throat> okay. Um, let's get back to Jesus hammering us with humorous and outlandish examples of our hypocritical tendencies, shall we? Um, I like this set of verses. It's fun. Uh, this is really a solid example of um, the perpetual blindness and justification towards our own sins uh, and our hypersensitivity and thirst for justice when it comes to others. I'm going to go to 2 Samuel 12. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Uh, if you think it would take you a minute to find that, then you can just chill out and I'll read it to you. Um, 2 Samuel 12. Okay, so before we read this, uh, we're going to start in verse 1. I need to give you a little bit of backstory. So what happened is uh, David is king. And everyone knows the king's house is higher than everyone else's house. So he's up on his high house looking down upon the lower houses. And what he sees is a woman named Bathsheba. It's a strange coincidence because what he sees her doing is bathing. 
And so um, he is obviously intrigued by this and uh, sinfully, instead of looking away, as he should have, sends his guys over to fetch her, brings her to the palace, finds out she's married to one of his soldiers that's out fighting at that time to defend his kingdom. Uh, And from what I understand from some of the Jewish historians I've read is typically kings of that time would have been out fighting. So that's, that's a part of the problem right there is what the heck are you even doing home when you should be out with your men uh, defending the kingdom. But we'll, we'll just park that for later. Bottom line is he wasn't. So he calls her over, uh, commits adultery with her, thinks he can just get away with that. She ends up pregnant. Now he realizes he really has a problem. So he sends a message to the front line for Uriah to come home. That's Bathsheba's husband. And what he's hoping to do is to get Uriah home real quick so that he'll sleep with his wife and that'll cover up this pregnancy. Uriah, however, is such a solid dude that he's like, listen, I've got guys that I'm out, I mean, I'm out there fighting and bleeding with on the front line. I, I'm not t- so sure why you even brought me home, but what I'm not going to do is enjoy the pleasure of sleeping with my wife while I got my friends out there dying to defend this country. I'm going to sleep outside and then I'm going to go back and do what I'm commanded to do. Wow, that's called backbone, gentlemen, um, and we need more of it. Uh, so that's the deal. And then, so David realizes his plan isn't going to work. And so he says, uh, sends a message and says, uh, then, then I want Uriah on the front line. He's hoping then to end up, uh, having him killed. And that's what happens. Okay. So, uh, David sins and decides to cover his sin. Here comes in, uh, chapter 12 of second Samuel, uh, here comes Nathan, the prophet, and he's coming to talk to David about this series of events Um, I'm going to start in chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. This is not a. Um, this is not the Lord saying weird pet relationships like that are okay. All right, off we go. <laughs> now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Do you understand what happened here? Rich guy, poor guy. Somebody comes into town. The rich guy's you know, customary is to feed him. He doesn't want to pull somebody, something from his own flock, so assumingly he uses his rich influence, takes this guy's one lamb and cooks that instead for the traveler. So here's David's response to that. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man! Thus says the Lord God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the swords of the sons of Ammon. 
You know what's hilarious? A bunch of us could sit here and think, how dumb are you, David? How do you not see, when Nathan comes and tells you this story, how could you not see that the story was you, man? It's the exact same set of sins. And as we laugh and shake our heads in disbelief, feeling morally superior to David, we're doing the exact same thing David did. As he raged against the rich man in the story. You need to understand, you have the same tendency to be that dense about your own sin. Nathan comes and just all he does is change the characters in the story from a woman on a rooftop to a lamb and from a, rich, from a king to a rich man. I mean, it's, there's no variance. And he comes and tells David this story and David's ready to, he wants the guy murdered. Justice should be done. That's his cry. Imagine his face when Nathan says, hold on, brother, you're him. Really, his sin is more grievous than any story about a lamb, because we're talking about a woman and a man, real people, as opposed to the animal in the story. Not that their life has no value, but human life clearly has more. None of us has walked through this life and not let some sinful desire cause us to disobey God instead of obey Him. None of us is immune from that. And so none of us should be able to read this story and sit in a, in a place of piety thinking that David is unbelievable in his ignorance. Because we all do this. We all look at somebody next to us in their sin, and because it may be slightly different than ours, or maybe it isn't at all, somehow we can see theirs but miss ours. David was guilty of this. You are guilty of this. I am guilty of this, and we need to know it. We're going to need God's help not to do it because it's sinful. It's called hypocrisy. It's a word we're all familiar with, and it, it just sounds disgusting even coming out of our mouths. Because it's not something anybody wants to be. And I believe about you that that's, that's not what you want, but part of what God does in his word is brings to our attention our tendencies that sometimes we're unaware of. And so we are, we tend to think of hypocrisy more often as, um, you know, saying one thing and then, and then doing the other. This, this is a little bit different, but no less hypocritical, maybe more so. Um, the fact that none of us has been able to walk through this life without disobeying God, uh, that's the bad news, and it's the first part of the gospel. None of us has the right to feel superior to another because our sins are less offensive in our own minds, because your mind is the only place where we are better than others, or our sin is less grotesque. The bad news is we are all imperfect and stained by sin, and only what is perfect can be in the presence of God and in relationship with Him. So all of us would suffer the same fate as David or anybody else who had committed heinous acts of treason against the Creator King by our sins. We all have sinned. We all have fallen short. This is bad news, especially if you didn't have the good news, but we do. And that's why it's so precious to us. The bad news is, in and of ourselves, we'd all be hypocrites, we'd all be treasonous, we'd all be sinful, and we'd all end up in hell forever, and that's what we deserve, and it would be just. But thank God, he went with mercy instead of justice. He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to be born of a virgin and live a perfect life. So we need to remember this when we want to demand justice on others. Remember, remember this. What happened to Jesus wasn't fair. and It wasn't justice. It was mercy for our sakes. Because he lives a perfect life, he never sins once. He's the only one that pulls it off. And then he 
goes and pays the punishment for all the people that did sin. That's good news. That God would consider the sacrifice and the selfless laying down that Jesus did in our place for our sins, that he would count that as justice served. And that Jesus, somehow because of his great love for us and the ultimate plan and God's sovereignty, he would allow Jesus to pay the price that all of us should have paid. That his sinless, perfect blood being shed in our place, that that covered the cost of sin. And then the great part about it is the story's not even over there. He dies in our place for our sins, but then three days later he rises from the grave. And that validates everything he said about being God, <laughs> that he'd be back. Go ahead and destroy this temple. Three days later I'm going I'm to raise it up again. And so we see that all that he said is clearly true uh, because, you know, if a guy's a fraud, he doesn't rise from the dead. <laughs> but he did. And then he ascends to heaven and today sits at the right hand of the Father as our advocate. Um, guys, our sins are many. What we, what we deserve is to be separated from God. That is, that is the bad news. The good news is... Um, God really, really, really loves us, and he proved it. He sent Jesus to die on the cross to make a way that what we deserved isn't what we got. <laughs> he went mercy instead of justice. Well, he made Jesus pay the justice, and he gave us mercy, which still, that arithmetic just blows my mind. That's why I'm still excited to be a Christian. That's why I'm way more excited to be on Team Jesus than be associated with any other team. And you can call me eccentric, I'm overdoing or whatever, but I just... I don't understand how you could actually get the gospel and not be floored by it every time you think about it. <laughs> it's, it's the most loving, incredible, merciful, beautiful thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and because I've heard it and because I understand it, I know that I'm called to share it. And I know if I'm called to share it and, and, and that people are going to come to believe it, then I'm called to, to walk with those people and, and to help hone them by God's spirit into a disciple that then goes and repeats that process. That's what this is supposed to look like. And when I'm doing that, I need to remember that I can't be a hypocrite. I can't live a double life in front of them because they will end up emulating me. This, this, this is especially true for our kids. Those of you that are parents, whether you're doing so good on the disciple-making thing outside of that, if you have kids, you're a disciple-maker. You have little disciples every single day watching all that you do, the way that you speak, the way you react to situations. And let me just say right now, uh, I don't know if my ears are red, but I'm burning with conviction because my kids see me all the time. And I do my best to be loving always in front of them and in every situation and not be easily frustrated, but the reality is sometimes that stuff, it sneaks up behind you and, and, and your voice is louder than it should be or it may not even be directed at them or they can just, kids are so perceptive, they read your body language. That's why it's not good enough to try to fake it in front of them. You have to really, really be full of love and gratitude and joy and peace in your heart. Because you're making little disciples. They're going to be like you. How many of you got kids and stuff has come out of their mouth and you're like, oh, Jesus, help me. That's me. <laughs> they are, man. Again, what am I doing? I'm doing what Jesus, what I believe Jesus was doing in verse 40 is he was saddling them with accountability. Saying, guys, nobody's going to rise above their teacher. And you're going to end up being teachers and disciple makers. And so you need to get this. Don't be hypocrites. I want you to feel that. I want us to feel that today. I want us to realize the importance of our call. That's why we can't afford for you to be out doing whatever you think is cool. We need you to be on mission. We need you to love God and love his people more than you love yourself. 
And whatever sinful desire might try to pull you to the right and the left. We need to be on our game. We need to be on mission. We need to be a part of the greatest rescue mission that anybody's ever been on, ever, in all of history. And that's letting people know that though they deserve to go to hell, there's mercy available and hope in Christ. We're on that team. And it, it encompasses every part of our life. That's part of also what we see in verse 40. It's not this, um, I fulfill that by, you know, putting in my one day a week or whatever it is. There is no sacred and, and secular divide. All of life is encompassed by this beautiful gospel. To believe this gospel is to be completely and totally submitted to the one who is its author. That's King Jesus. And that means all day, every day, all the minutes, all the seconds. If you belong to him, you belong to him. We've got to live like that's true. All the time. Amen? Amen. You going to slip and fall and not do perfect at that? Of course. But then repentance and grace is there, and we get to experience and taste the beauty of forgiveness that is only possible because of Christ. And there's nothing wrong with modeling that. Can I just say that as a disciple maker? Don't go hide in a corner and repent. Repent in the open so that people see what that looks like. I promise you, I try to do that. I, I don't want anybody to think because the call of God on my life requires me to stand in front of people and teach the Bible that I'm somehow on a higher plane that means I sin less. I, I absolutely understand I'm called to be a leader among God's people and thus my accountability will be higher. Those are the scariest scriptures in the whole Bible. I get it. And so, yes, I'm trying very hard to make sure tomorrow I'm sinning less than I do today. And I want to be a good example. But none of us is perfect. But what I want to be a good example of is when I trip and fall, I do something, say something dumb, then I'm quick to repent. I want to repent in front of my kids, in front of my wife. I want them to see me doing that. I want my friends to see me repent because I'm coming and I'm not just hiding with me and God. Me and God are cool. Listen, man, quit saying that. You and God aren't cool unless you're obeying the Bible. You and God aren't cool unless you're in community with God's people. Can I just say that? See, that's what happens. You give me those holy stares. You get me fired up. You're gonna, I'm going to lead down a rabbit trail. We won't get back. You're, you're not, you and Christ aren't okay if you're just doing whatever the heck you want. <laughs> he told us how to be okay. It's obey his word. He, he, he said very clearly, you want, you want to know if you love me? You want to display the fact that you love me? What do you say to do? Obey me. <laughs> Obey my commandments. You're good with Christ if you're obeying him. And of course, we are going to slip and fall, but one of the ways we obey him is when we do, we repent. We're open about it. We live in the light. We talk to somebody. We say, hey, this, I, I, failed and I, I, I fell this week. I'm struggling. Will you pray for me? Because as they see that happen, as they see grace unleashed into your life, and they see you empowered, not only forgiven by that grace, but then empowered to sin less, they're encouraged. And that's how we run this thing together. Beautiful. That's how it's supposed to work. What the devil wants you to do is stay in shame and try to be fake and convince everybody of something that we already know isn't true. That you're perfect. That you don't struggle with sin. Well, that's dumb. Because <laughs> that's not true, is it? We know that. Amen. Let's just get that out there. <laughs> I'm going to struggle this week. So will you. Is that cool? Okay, there it is. It's out there. Now, let's live in the light. Because we'll, we'll do better and God will get more glory. <clears throat> May we be a people who do not judge others harshly, but deal with our own sins with the most severity. 
May we also lovingly give and receive accountability for the building up and strengthening of the body of Christ. May we not be hypocrites, blind to our own struggles, but happy to shine a spotlight on the struggles of others. May we always keep in mind our commission to be disciple makers. And may this be for us an incredible motivation to live in holiness, thus being good teachers worthy of being followed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, Lord. I thank you for these verses. I thank you, Lord, that you mixed some humor in as you were hammering us with that loving hammer. Um, please, Lord, help us by your Spirit not to be the people described in this parable, not to be ones with logs in our eye, walking around picking specks out of others. But God, let us also realize that what you're saying in this is not that we don't ever lovingly challenge each other, but we should not come with this pious and prideful attitude that because I'm better than you, I'm going to help you. But we should understand that all of us are struggling. All of us are working towards holiness. All of us are in this race. And that you've given us each other to help keep us accountable, to, to challenge us, to, to judge us lovingly. Help us, Lord, to be aware of our motives. Sometimes, God, we, we are not that good at even knowing our own motives. Sometimes we fool ourselves. And so, Lord, we need the help of your Holy Spirit to not do that. We don't want to be deceived, especially self-deceived. That's the worst. Lord, please help us to be aware of what's going on in our heart. Don't let us be a part of this beautiful process of accountability with dirty motives, with motives that are fueled by pride. I don't ever want to do that. Lord, help us not to think we're better than others. Help us have the same mind you did. Considering yourself less important than us and proving it by dying on a cross in our place. Lord, we need your help. As with all the things you ask of us, really, we need your help because our natural tendency is not. It's not to be pure in this. It's to hide our sins and talk bad about others. Lord, that's just... So useless. We ask for your help, Lord. Not so much just that we can reap the benefits of not living this way, but we're really concerned with your glory. Lord God, we know that we reflect you. We know that because we bear your name, we've been called to walk in a manner that is worthy of that. We know that because we're associated with you, the way we live and the way we talk and the way we think and, the, and what we do, how we treat people, that that reflects upon you. And so God, I really want to do better at that. I really want people to be drawn to you by the way I treat them. And I don't do very good at that sometimes. Please forgive me for that. And help me to do better. Help us to do better. I ask you, Lord, to just anoint Love City with a supernatural ability to love people, even when they're having a rough day. Help us not to be self-focused. Help us not to be hypocritical. But those that are concerned with the good of others and with your glory, above all else, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.